Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Tommy Vanek of Verity Wines on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me here. So you have a long career in New York wine sales, but how did we get there? I mean, how did you end up in the wine business? Was it something you always knew you wanted to do? Yeah, I was uh, I was born and I said, wait a second, I want to be a wine salesman. <laughs> no, um, it was actually completely, uh, completely random. had no idea I wanted to uh, do this. It was never in, uh, never even my thought. Actually, when my um, my parents would tell me, it's, I'm not much of a talker, really. You might uh, refute that. I didn't speak for two years. When I you were a little like, kid. When I was a not little recently. kid. Not, not recently. Like, yeah, not recently. <laughs> when you were 35, between 35 and 37, you didn't say anything. No, it, was, <laughs> as a little kid, you, you didn't talk much. I didn't. My parents tell me I didn't speak to my kindergarten teacher until when school starts in September. I didn't speak to her till April. Hopefully they were grading on a curve with the other kid that was still sucking his thumb. You know what I mean? Exactly. So no, I um I, I found myself just uh, kind of falling into the to the wine side of it more from just needing to get out of the restaurant side and recreating myself. I was in my I was in Miami for um, about three four years. What were you doing down there? Toiling in restaurants. Probably well, half restaurants, half doing whatever you do in Miami. The opening, double, <laughs> closing shift. Oh, one six thirty in the morning, getting home. You know, in one of the nightclubs, and uh, you know, just progress to progress through everything. I mean, probably in the three years, I probably had about five or six jobs down there. Well, that's Miami style, though. But that's <laughs> that doesn't eggs. say anything about you. That's but that's I always way. showed up for work on time. Actually, actually, I worked I worked tirelessly at, at at times as well. But when I got down there, you know, I was in I was in Colorado first. Just uh, wanted to get out of that's New York. That's a big difference, just in terms of temperature. In terms of temperature, absolutely. And I didn't want to leave Colorado. Actually, I was dragged out of there. Did you, a girlfriend? Was that a girlfriend time. move? Oh, of course, isn't it always? She's like, I'm a little cold again. <laughs> again, yeah. it's like I'm miserable. I hate this. I'm going to Miami. You following? It's like, uh, okay, <laughs> I guess. I never any inclination again down there. So you, you get know. to to Miami. You're working in a restaurant scene. Who else was down there at that time? 
Uh, believe it or not, a couple guys that are in the business up here now and are pretty successful. Um, were one of them was actually my manager at time. Uh, Paula Domenighetti from Domain Select. Oh, really? We, we, he was my manager. One of the principals there. of Domain Select was your your he was, manager. He was a manager at one of the restaurants I worked at. Um, funny story. He probably doesn't mind if I say this. Um, because of me, he got punched in the face once. Really? He got into a fight with one of the servers, and. I was holding Paolo back from going after him. While I was holding him, no one was holding the other guy. Got sucker punched? Got sucker punched. It's like, I felt so bad, my God. Does he still hold that against you? I noticed you're not working for Domain Select these days. <laughs> no, no, no. When we run into each other, we get along great. <laughs> he probably owes you one, though, right? He He's probably like, does. So uh, you're down there in Miami, and 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 you're working the, the hard shift at the restaurant. And, and what inspired you to get on the other side of the business? Well, you know, when I got down there, it's before that I was pretty much just uh, bartending waiting tables. As I was getting down there, as I was working down there, working with, uh, you know, meeting friends, got more into the management side, started with bar manager um, at, the, at the Pelican on, okay. on, on uh, Ocean Drive. And then over into a um, couple of jobs later, actually, uh, Moe's Cantina, which was a big cantina down on Collins Street. And uh, got into more of the beverage manager side of the. So thing. that's the South Beach thing. That's the South. Most cantina was it was a monster. I mean, it was a huge Mexican ten cantina, right on what was it uh, Collins and Seventh. And what year was this? This was I'm going to give away my age. <laughs> this was ninety five. And Scarface had kind of set the tone for Miami. And Scarface, Versace was shot. The blue door had oh. opened up, and <laughs> when I when I got down there, there was I mean, there was nothing down there. Is that true? Was it, it still a place where people are a little bit like wary to go? It absolutely south of Fifth Street. And it was I mean, there was one restaurant. Um, you still had the uh, you still had the old retirees sitting on their porches, the old people sitting there. And uh, I mean, I haven't been down there. I haven't been back there in about 12 years. But uh, I think when I was down there, probably in my 97, was the first chain store to actually move down. It was probably like a gap. Before that, there was nothing. And uh, so, you know, I was working this uh, Mexican cantina, Mo's Cantina. It was, it, was, it, was it was a monster. It was so incredibly, incredibly busy. I mean, I, I mean, I had to order from, I had to order salsa from Southern, 25, 30 cases a week. Really? Yeah. That's just some, one item. Just some serious one volume. item. They're like, Tommy V's on the phone. Get the big truck. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If I have to listen to the Macarena one more time. Right, 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 right. I will, I will Still scarred? I will absolutely shoot myself. But um, knowing that uh, I was just getting burnt out on the restaurant side, uh, I mean, I was going to the restaurant. I was there at 12 o'clock, you know doing whatever beverage director does during the day and then bartending at night and then closing up, you know, start at 12, get out at two o'clock. That wasn't the 6.30 one, that was the two o'clock one. And, uh, but, you know, through that whole time, I started dealing more with, uh, with the, the wholesalers. And down there was, it was Southern for the most part. It was national. Because there's not that many wholesalers. There wasn't that many and we were in a wine place. Right, so you're not even really dealing with OPG. It's like no, we weren't a wine. I think we had six wines, six reds, six white, 
and we probably sold about six red, six white per week. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> You're like, oh, wait, we do have oh, some. Yeah. yeah. Wait a second. It's not that Dayglowa tequila stuff, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want this chilled. <laughs> so you... We did make a good margarita, though, I tell you that. You're you're buying from the Southern Rep and... and so I'm buying from the Southern Rep. His, uh, I can't remember his name, last name, Alan, his name. He's still around. I think he works for Majestic these days up in Boston or something. And, you know, I just... He was a good guy. We got along great. He would constantly, you know, he would always be there, obviously, being a really good account for him. And just, uh, you know, starting to talk to him and seeing, finding out what we did, and or even seeing what he did. You know, he strolled in there at uh, 2 o'clock. I don't think he ever answered the phone before 2. You know, I figured he was sleeping. Yeah. You know, and then 6 o'clock, he'd be at the bar having a drink. Sing along to the Macarena. <laughs> exactly. But I'm embellishing a little, little bit now. Yeah, he, he's he, probably not going to have a job when this yeah, comes out. Yeah, he'll not have a job, exactly. Thanks, Tommy. But he was, uh, he was a good guy. He was real professional. And, and I really saw what that side of the business is and how, in a way, it, it, uh, it fit my personality well as well. I mean, I, I couldn't sit at a desk nine to five. I yeah. Mean, we know that. I established that, you know. Years earlier, you weren't you weren't big on the college thing. I wasn't big. I wasn't big on the college thing. Definitely not. And um, and I, you know, I I was determined to get out of Miami. I just had enough of it. And I'm a born and bred New Yorker, and I knew when I was coming back up to New York, I was you know, no more restaurants because you you had grown up in Queens, and so you wanted to come back to the. To the New York scene. I grew up in Queens. Yeah, I mean, I only reason I left is because it was not what you do. You got to leave once, right? You got to leave come once. Come back right. after that. But you were doing some skiing in Colorado too, like ski bump stuff, right? Oh yeah. Well, when I when I left Colorado, I just packed up the car. I was ready to leave. Going back to the girlfriend at the time, I was literally within a week of leaving, and she says, "You mind if I come with you? I just want to take a road trip, and then I'll come back after." It's all right, sure. Yeah, why this not? is she's leaving Queens to go with you to Colorado. Yeah, yeah and she's like, oh, I just want to take a road trip, and you're yeah. like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll move not? the skis over. Yeah, no, she was a skier. She's from. Uh, she was. She's actually. I think she was actually a Miami girl. And uh, we got out there, and I just, yeah, I just wanted to go get out of New York and just kind of be a ski bum. It's where I kind of first uh, got full time into the restaurant business. I mean, I started bartending when I was 19. You know, I was. Uh, I went to. Uh, Did you take the course. I took the course. I went to the bartenders, the bartender course. A proud graduate. A proud graduate. I made a killer, a killer screwdriver. You know, <laughs> you got all eight ingredients of the I, screwdriver in there, I, did you? Uh, the I, ice, the glass, okay. the orange juice, <laughs> exactly. the, stir, the straw, the stir stick. <laughs> yeah. and uh, and uh, old fashioned as well. So I, you know, I went through that. And actually, the reason I, the reason I did that is, I was, um, I really just wanted. Wanted to meet more people. I mean, I needed yeah. to make more money. Right. I wanted to meet different people. You know, I was still in the neighborhood. At, uh, I mean, this was like, I was like 19 or 20. I was still in the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I just needed to get out. And it's like, all right, I need to, I need to get out of these five square block area here. Right. Same, same kids you went people. to school with. So, yeah. So I went to bartending school and they placed me in my first job out in Roslyn, Long Island, a place called the Jolly Fisherman. Well, as long as the fisherman's happy, then you know it's a good thing. It was um, it was real old school. 
I, it was real old school. Like on the wharf kind of thing? Uh, it wasn't even on the wharf. It was right in downtown Roslyn. You know, my uh, my co-bartender, I had two co-bartenders. One gentleman was, uh, he was about seven years old. Stories, stories to die for. You know, stories to die for. Bartended all around the world, professional one. And, um, and I ended up working there on and off for six years on Fridays and Saturdays. You know, left a little bit, came back, always, always had a gig, and then I stopped working there. And then they called me and said, "Listen, we need, we need someone to fill in." So, you know, so that's that's how I that's how I that's how I got into it. So when I was heading out to Colorado, uh, I that's when I first got into you know full time in the restaurants, and I was just waiting tables, bartending, actually and, waiting tables over there mostly, and and skiing, and that and wake it. <laughs> I think we skied about 100 days that year. Woke up every morning, got on the slopes like uh, 8.30, 9 o'clock, skied right until 3 o'clock, had a locker right by the restaurant, threw all my gear in there, didn't even shower, and threw all my gear Which in there. Which is something, uh, a strategy that still works for you today, apparently. It, 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 works, it works very well. No <laughs> one showers in this business. Come on. No. And uh, and yeah, then uh, worked uh, worked through the night. Finished at about eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, and then did the same thing again the next day. So when you when you decided it was time to come back to New York, was that an easy transition? A lot of guys uh, begging to give you a job. Yeah, exactly. I had uh, no. I was I was I was scared at all. I was scared as all hell. I mean, I was first. You know, I mean, I was down in Miami. You know, you waste waste a lot of time down there. You guys like, all right, now what am I going to do? Am I going to do this all 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 this? So I was determined to get into the restaurant side, and it I had no idea how to do it. So I got back up here. I spoke to you know, I guess a friend or two that was in the restaurant business. I knew about the beverage media, you know, a big useless book, and just literally flipped through every page. I think there was about. 25 wholesalers in there at that time? Not as many as today. Where oh, like my God. 85 or something. No, 85, 200 wholesalers, whatever. <laughs> uh, so I, I wrote up a resume, faxed a, faxed a resume when faxes were actually used. It wasn't teletype? It wasn't <laughs> teletype. It wasn't Morse code either. Faxed to 25 or so, you know, including, you know, Skernick and uh, whoever, Martin Scott, Weinbow, Wildman, whoever was around there. And one called, Paramount Eber Brothers. One out of 25. One out of 25. Picked up the phone. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think the reason that they called is, uh, besides not being very smart. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they hired me. Um, they were, uh, I think they were relatively new in the market at that time. They... We're mostly an upstate company, more a little more spirit based at the time, and then they I, they bought a wholesaler. Well, it was the Eber family, so they bought the I think the wholesale was named Paramount, and so they were you know within the market a couple of years and they were expanding. They needed somebody to cover the outer territories. They needed Queens. I was a Queens native. I said, you know, it's got to be perfect for Queens, right? You spoke the language. You knew I, who. I, I spoke. Yeah, you knew who was out there, and yeah. you know you were a local kid. Yeah, exactly. So I take the job. I have no idea what I'm doing, and they they give me a book. They give me some samples, 
And, you know, I'm just running around to all corners of Queens. And back then, I mean, even today, maybe I could say this because I'm from Queens. Even Queens a little backwards these days. It's not Brooklyn, that's for sure. In terms of the, you're not having your farm to table uh, restaurant so much. Oh God, I'm in a story. If I could have just a couple farm to table places in my my neighborhood, I'd love that. So um, just running around, uh, running around Queens with with a book that was uh you know we we had a lot of spirits and you know queens was you know the spirit industry was pretty simple back then but even back then you know we were selling jim beam and even back then jim beam it's like i'd go in, i'd go into all these restaurants and i'd take out that bottle of jim beam and they'd point over to the back of the bar you see that bottle of jim beam it's been there for 10, 15 years. Really, just straight up Jim Beam. Just straight up Jim Beam. It was a difficult upsell. It was a, was a difficult sell, not even upsell. It wasn't anything really. Well, actually, I guess there was below it. And look at it today. I mean, what's in today? I mean, artisanal's in. You got all these local uh, small dist- boutique distilleries on bourbons, rums, whatever. You know, back then, you couldn't even sell, uh, you couldn't even sell Beam. But they, um, but they coddled me well. They they did. They really gave me all the tools to do it. One of my managers, he uh, his name is Peter Sloan, and his couple things that I, I I still remember today. He would basically tell me, if you're having a bad day, yeah, you can you're gonna have a lot of doors slammed in your face. You're having a bad day, go home, go home, put your brain back together, and then tomorrow wake up, do it again. And he he told me that constantly, and it was probably at that time it was probably one of the better, one of the best piece of advices uh, I, I ever got, even to this day. Because there's a lot of rejection when you're a salesman at at the wholesale level. Oh, there's a ton of rejection. I mean, you get to, every day you get to, every day you get rejected. It's not necessarily not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you, everybody's not going to buy what you're carrying around that day. Obviously, you know, rejection is like, eh, not right now. You know, maybe in the future, it's like, oh, no, that's goddamn awful, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, because a lot of times people are like, oh, wine salesman, that must be a, a, a cush gig. That must be great. You're, you're hanging out with, you know, winemakers all the time. You're opening up fabulous bottles. But the, the part of the reality is you're taking a heavy bag around the subway all day and talking to guys who don't have enough time to talk to you or have other things on their mind. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a hustle. I mean, how many times have you been sitting at the bar and... You're tasting wine, tasting wine with your, uh, your your distributor. I'm tasting wine with the buyer, and then someone be, and you know, customer will be at the bar. It's like, wow, I want your job. Right, right, right. That's the greatest job in the world. You drink wine all day. It's like, yeah, that's all we do. Just drink wine all day, and then you know, you just want to, you just want to say to them, it's like, yeah, but you know, up and down a subway, you got six, you got nine bottles of wine in your bag. You know, either you're wheeling it behind you through the slush or you got it on your shoulder and you go home at the end of the day, your back is killing you. You know, you got the uh, August days and 95 degrees and bring you, bring you a bottle of wine and it's, you know. That boiling big, temperature. <laughs> fat Cabernet or Tannic Barolo, <laughs> you got 95 degrees, like, mm, that's, uh, that's good. You know, in the winter, you got your red wines at about 32 degrees, like a day like this. 
little extra tannin coming li- through in the taste. A little extra tannin. It does taste better cold than warm, though. That's for darn sure. But when did you know that you wanted to be in the wine thing? Because it's not always, a, as we say, not always a, a fun thing to be traveling around the streets. But when did you say, like, hey, this is, this is working for me? Was there a moment? You know, I don't know if there was a moment, but um, I I seem... Um, you know, when I, I, I guess because I, you know, I really want, I really wanted or needed this to succeed, I, I worked my butt off at Paramount, and um, it showed, it showed, it showed with the bosses over there, and um, within six months, they actually sent me on a wine trip. Oh, okay. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a wine trip that I earned. It was just, you know what? He's busting his butt. Let's send him somewhere. And it was definitely an eye-opening experience. A, first of all, it was, it was, it was, it was a trip to France. First time I've ever been to France. And, you know, it was your typical death marches. You know, it was with uh, Dan Kravitz. Dan oh, Kravitz yeah, sure. selections, yeah. So, you know. Hand-picked selections. Hand-picked selections. And it was, uh, it was yeah, your typical death march. And, you know, we'd be on the bus. We'd, you know, we were in... Uh, we're in Bordeaux, we're in Burgundy, we're down south, we were in Provence, and we were in uh, you know Chateauneuf. And I guess my first my first real amazing experience was when we were down in Chateauneuf. We were you know we camped out at a hotel. We we had a real nice dinner the night before. Got got to bed whenever we did after drinking all night. And me and this uh, one other guy didn't know. Just met him on the trip. Real nice guy. He was uh, from Chicago, worked for, a, worked for a distributor over there. And we decided that uh, we're going to wake up in the morning and just kind of explore. So uh, one of the, one of the uh, producers that uh, Handpick Selections was uh, representing was uh, Domaine Pigau. Oh, sure. You know, great Chateauneuf producer. And uh, we literally, if I, if I remember correctly, I think we actually hopped into a cab. The hotel wasn't right, weren't right on the property. We hopped into the cab, took a cab ride out there. And got out of the cab. We, we were unannounced, and we uh, knocked on the door. And we, uh, you know, we met her the day before. And Laurence, the who was uh, the daughter who's basically running the sh- running it there now. She was so gracious, so friendly, and just took took a good hour, hour and a half of her time, and hopped in her pickup truck or her her uh, SUV. And just took us to took us to all their vineyards. The first time, you know, first time I really walked through the vineyards, and, and you know, as you know, Chateauneuf with the big guy stones, you know, beautiful. Took us through the cellars, the barrels. It was it was one of the most exhilarating experiences. The first one I had in in this business, and I guess you could say I was kind of hooked that way, in in that sense. So. Um, and then after, you know, after that, there's you know, many more trips, and you know, I mean, travel everywhere doing this. One of the one of the benefit, one of the key benefits of the trip, right? You know, been, you know, Australia, Chile, New Zealand, you know, all over Europe. Any other, uh, you know, people on the trip really stand out for you on your on your way through wines world? Yeah, well, <laughs> on these uh, death marches, when you got people coming from all. All areas of the 
all areas of the country. You don't know them. You get your good, you get your bad, you get your ugly. You get people you become friends with, people that's like, oh man, they're just complaining all day long. But you always have, you always have cast of characters, always someone getting in trouble. Either it's turning late, you know, showing up to the bus late every day, things like that. There was one guy, this is a, this is a short story. One guy who is a Texan, big loudmouth Texan. We were down in, we were down in uh, Chile. We went down there with uh, Veramonte and uh, wake up in the morning, bus is ready to go. He doesn't show up for the bus. No one knows where he is. We were actually taking, we were actually taking the bus to the airport. We were at Veramonte for one day and they were taking us down to Patagonia for, for a week. Doesn't show up for the bus. Bus can't wait. You know, have to get going. Get on, you know, get on the plane. We get down there. He ends up, he ends up getting himself down there after. But he apparently missed the bus because he couldn't find his wallet. Oh yeah. Thought his wallet was lost. But the reason, which is not necessarily funny, but he thought it was stolen by the prostitute he hired the night right, before. Right, 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 right. Was he now in the Secret Service or is that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> God knows. Guy. It's Texas. <laughs> you know, if, I think it turns out that the wallet was essentially under his bed. Oh, uh, so she wasn't like on a buying tour at Saks? Uh, exactly. In, in Manhattan at that time? No, Santiago. <laughs> so you uh, were at Paramount and yep. you're working with those guys and uh, you're selling wine and you're selling liquor market's changing a little bit and you had a friend over at Lobber. Yep. I had a friend. Well, you know, I was at Paramount for about uh, nine years mm-hmm. and it was, it was, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, when I, when I joined them, they were small and throughout there into the millennium, we were just on fire. I mean, Clico was a fraction of the size it was now. Moet, Moet ruled then. And, you know, so we really built up Clico to, you know, to be what is the most popular now, I guess. I watched that rise. You watched that rise, thing. same here. I mean, I was selling, I was selling tons of, it's, it, even then it's a fraction of, uh, it's dropped since the, the millennium, you know, everything did in that sense. And, um, you know, kicked off Belvedere. Belvedere was just a pipe dream. They brought us, came into our sales meeting, bottles of Belvedere. I was still, actually, I was still running around Queens at this time. And, Belvedere was expensive. It wasn't a. It was like a luxury tw- vodka. It was a luxury. Yeah, it wasn't a twelve dollar vodka. It was twenty five, thirty. It was thinking at that point. It was like thirty five dollars, and I would actually have to take them. We couldn't sell Jim Beam in Queens. <laughs> Imagine taking Belvedere. Right, 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 right. right. Talk about that. Those doors getting shut on you. So it was. It was a great. Uh, it was a great rise, and I. I guess I cultivated my philosophies and. And my experience from there. Were there special uh, instances that really helped you develop who you were as a salesman that you maybe had with customers? Were there moments that really stood out? You know, I was always, uh, you know, I was always told that this is, um, it wasn't a, uh, it's, it's, it's not a sales gig, really. Is that true? I mean, to me, a sales gig is, you know, you sell, you go in door to door, you sell them vacuum cleaners. All right. You see the person, you don't know who they are. Yourself, you got to make that sale right there and then. You see them once, you never see them again. It doesn't matter what you sell them. It could, you know. with, uh, with sales or the relationship side of it, we have to, we see each other all the time. You know, 
sometimes you might see a customer more than you see your your, your wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you're working all day. So if I'm, you know, I'm seeing a customer every month, let's say, some twice a month, some three times a month. In order for them to want to do business with you, yeah, you could have the products they want and they'll buy some. But in order to be truly successful with someone, you have to cultivate that relationship. And that relationship can come in so many different ways. You know, A, they have to at least like you, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, or at least not hate you. Because they got to be willing to take right your out. calls. They got to be willing to not even take your calls, but, uh, you know, know that you're not wasting their time. Mm-hmm. Um, know that you're bringing the right products to them. You know, it's and cultivating that relationship from from my standpoint is more of you really just need to sit back and listen. So you know, you have you have many facets of the business. There's a, you know, there's the Somali trade. There's the local pub. There's the retail. There are places in between, and everyone is completely different. You know, for a retail, you might throw out the scores. So you have to. A lot of them buy with it. That's the language they talk. That's the language they talk. You know, you're not going to, you know, do that to a, you know, four star restaurant because they'll get turned off. They'll be like, "Come on, dude, who cares?" You know, you have to, and and you have to, you know, you have to ask the questions, really listen to, and understand what they're trying to, what they're trying to do with their restaurant, and that could come in, like I said, in many ways, you know. Reading through the wine list and see what the wine list is. See what areas they're covering. Are they geared towards organic, biodynamic, natural? Um, and as you taste with some, and actually, and also getting to know their palate, you know, which I think I do, which I think I do fairly well. Understanding what their palate is and what they, what generally pleases them and makes their you know, their eyes light up. So. The corner liquor store, the big shop retail, the more humble family restaurant, the big restaurant, what they all seem to have in common that works for you is that you go in and listen to them. Yeah, you have to. You have to. There's too many, uh, there's too many salespeople that um, go out and listen. We all have we all have quotas. We all have things to sell. Uh, so somebody uh, puts something in your bag and like, hey, I want you to make some sales on this today. Right. You know, it's... Uh, the whole bit, I mean, a lot of the business is a quota-driven business. Mm-hmm. And, you know. If you sell 10,000 cases, we'll take you on this trip, that kind of stuff. Take you on the trip. And, you know, even even from a company standpoint, you got to be profitable. Just like a restaurant, you know, you don't want to, you know, you don't want something to sit there forever. Mm-hmm. You got to turn over. You got to sell it and turn it over. So it's really on every aspect of it. But uh, it doesn't it doesn't suit it doesn't suit anybody if you're just focusing on what you're being told to sell. Got it. You have to focus on what will sell or what they or what they want um because i've noticed with you one of the things you do is when you're waiting for an appointment is you'll flip through the wine list as opposed to you know it seems like you want to learn what a place is about you have to yeah yeah absolutely you have to because there's a lot of time people are just waiting you know at a bar for the buyer to show up or because i'm always running late or their espresso (laughs) right right well when i first do and when we first met uh, you know you were at alto and I must say, I don't think at that point Verity had the most dynamic Italian portfolio, and that's what you were buying. Well, it's developed a little bit, though. It's it's totally completely developed, but uh, you know, but you know, 
we got to know each other in a sh- in a short period of time, and I would think that it's the way I it's the way I handled you, and the way everything I am bringing you bringing really really thinking about what's in my book. And it's like, oh, would he like that? Would he like that? Would he like that? No, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Because a lot of times the buyer just doesn't have the time to sort through the book, so you kind of help them do that in a way. By oh, the buyer doesn't have want. the time to sort through the book at all. Yeah. You know, hey, yeah, you can ask, you could ask the questions like, hey, what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people might have clear thing in mind and some people not. I mean, you know, you probably took the appointments like, all right, this guy's trying, you know, let me come in and uh, make the appointment. But, um, but ultimately it's, um, it's, it's really seeing, you know, what I need to bring it. No one has time to look through, no one has time to look through a book. You're inundated with like a, there's 200 wholesalers out there, and then you got managers, and you got their managers, and you got importers, and all these people. So, who has time? You have, I mean, how many people you got knocking on your door on a, on a daily basis? 20 people every day. So you don't have time to, and then you get 200 emails, and you know you don't have time to look through a book. So, the, I need to make sure that I'm not wasting your time. And by you know all the things we mentioned and bringing the right things, you know the, the you know one of the hardest things is is um, is proper email etiquette in this new day and age since there's so many people running around every day. I mean, I I probably don't get a lot of emails comparatively speaking. I might get seventy five a day, but you know you got to weed through them. And so someone like you probably get about five hundred, and. Proper email etiquette is probably, I think, is one of the hardest things to do because you you need to convey a message, number one, but you have to find, you got to find a fine line. Are you sending too many emails, too many useless emails, or are you sending not enough where you're not even relevant? If you send too many, then you're going to see you can see my name pop up. And it's like, oh, delete that. Automatic delete. Delete yeah. that. <laughs> you know, so that's one of the hardest things in, you know, figuring out what to, what to I, send you. Am I bugging you too much? Am I bugging not yeah. enough? Right. Um, and you have to, and you, and, you know, send pertinent, pertinent stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so even, even with, uh, I mean, one thing I always send at the beginning of the month, I always send my price book mm-hmm. to people, to all my customers. You know, that's pertinent. And it keeps them, even former customers, you know, just to keep like, hey, you know, I'm still around, whatever. You know, you look at it, not, then you can delete it. But, you know, essentially it one day gets to be, you know, important again down the line when people move around. And, uh, you know, it's, again, relationships. So that relationship will always do full circle and come back to you even if it disappears for a little while. So you feel like that buyers do tend to move around and what you really end up doing is making a connection with the person, not the venue so much because they'll move and maybe – There'll be less sales at that place in that wake, but they'll go somewhere else and you'll do well there. Yeah, it could work out both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, if a buyer leaves a, if a buyer leaves a restaurant, depending on who's coming in, you know, your your business can go from, you know, real great to, to virtually nothing, depending on who they know and everything. But uh, the but the most important thing is when the buyer does leave, we all know people, it, it's a circle. It's an, it's not a big business. It's it's real small. And keeping those contacts, contacts are the most important thing. And that buyer will go from place to place to place to place. 
and you gotta you gotta keep that going. What are some of the buyer encounters that have really stood out for you over your career? Um, buyer encounters, well, you know, they're all they're all kind of uh, they're all kind of different. There's some buyers where you just become friends with, and you um, get to uh, you know you get to know, and you you end up over at their house, and they end up over at over at your house, and uh, you know th- things like that. Um, you know, the buyer, the buyer thing is, it's pretty, I did tell one customer to screw off once though. That was probably wasn't I forgave you. For no, it wasn't you. <laughs> no, it was this place down in the East Village. I remember doing that and it's like, ah, oh, he was, oh my God, I couldn't, couldn't stand him. He was actually the only, not even the buyer. And, uh, oh, I got home. I, I, I left, uh, I left the restaurant first thing I did. I was called my boss at Paramount. It's like, I think I screwed up today. Yeah. 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 He's like, okay, <laughs> like, go home. Oh, what you do? It's like, uh, Told the customer to f off. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's like, eh, yeah, probably not a good thing to do. It's like, <laughs> you want me to take you off the account? Yeah, probably be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, this do you sometimes kind of self-regulate in that way? Like, hey, I don't think this relationship's going so well. Maybe this account would be better with somebody else in the company, different different personality, and maybe I'll switch out with them on something that they're not doing too great at. Yeah, absolutely. Is that a regular? Do you guys have those discussions? Because it seems oh, yeah. like things just kind of happen, and you're like, "Wow, that's weird." No, there's a new guy here. Uh, so, do you have like regular meetings where you're like, "Hey, are you getting along with this?" I mean, how, what are those meetings like? Oh well, absolutely. Well, first of all, if a buyer changes, um, you know, the new buyer might have a relationship with a with another salesperson. So, do you all sit so, down and you're like, "Who knows Joe?" And then like a guy raises his hand, and you're like, "Okay, why don't you go talk to him?" Like, yeah, that well, kind of thing. It doesn't quite happen that way. <laughs> it's more like it's like. Uh, you know, co-worker will call, but it's like, hey, Tommy, it's like, I got a buyer. He just went over to one of your restaurants. Uh, you know, he really wants to work with me. You know, could we do something? So, you know, it's if it's a good customer, you know, if it's a good customer, you did really well there. You, um, it's like, ah, you know, want to trade something out. If it's a so mediocre customer and if it's a mediocre customer or a poor customer that you really didn't do much business with, yeah, just take it, see what you can do with it. I have a much different perspective on that these days now that uh, with Verity and, um, and, and investing in it. I definitely, even though my investment is uh, quite paltry, I do look at it a different way. Because like, you want the bottom line to come Well, you know, got to be profitable, you know, got to get the money back someday, right? And, uh, you know, so I'll, I'll look at an account and, or someone will, uh, you know, another salesperson come up to me and it's like, yeah, it's like, okay, so how am I doing there? It's like, could someone do better? So I'll definitely look at it from different glasses now and even just even look at my account around, I'm not doing good with this, not doing good with this. Usually you trade out, you know, once a year, beginning of the year, you've just finished a year, you just had a banner year, everything was great. And then you sit down, you sit down for your reviews Crunch the numbers. Crunch the numbers. And it's like, listen, you're doing great with these, these here. It's like, why aren't you doing good with that? Why aren't you doing good with this account? And, you know, let's let's weed out. Generally, most salespeople probably have way too many accounts. Is that true? Yeah. Even with the number of importers and distributors and salesmen in the ground, you think that in general people are given a little too much to cover? Yeah, because, we, well, I mean, there's a lot of restaurants there's a lot and of retail restaurants. stores out there. And, uh, I mean, Verity has... Uh, how many? Thirty-five salespeople. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a lot. Which is which is a fair amount. Out of that thirty-five, I guess twenty-five are based in the boroughs here, and you know twenty-five people for you know, ten thousand licenses. I mean, you know, that's that's a, that 
there's <laughs> a lot a lot of room to cover. Do you feel like you can go through a whole career and not even really touch certain market segments? Just like, hey, yeah, I never sold to uh, you know a Mexican restaurant kind of place, or I never sold to the Greek uh, places, or do you oh. feel like you can go the whole way through and just never really get involved with certain segments? Hey, absolutely. Well, it depends on what you're selling. Yeah. You know, would I knock on the door of a Mexican restaurant? No, probably not. I mean, how much wine does a Mexican restaurant sell? Not much for the most part. You know, being a being a wine house, you know, we'll you know we're not strong in the Mexican restaurant or even 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 the pub market theoretically. But you know, what, one thing salespeople do one thing salespeople do wrong is they pigeonhole themselves into a demographic. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 definitely salespeople that love you know love handling the the the, the four star restaurants, the som trade, love doing that. There's there's uh, some salespeople that uh, you know much more retail oriented, less on premise. One thing I learned from day one, which I still which I still religiously do, is I I kind of try to segment my account run into portions. You know, I want to have a portion of you know the som trade. I want to have portion retail. And retail is where the money is, no matter what anybody says. Is that true? So oh, the glamour is on the restaurant side. but The glamour is on the restaurant side. And how many times have I heard that's like, a, you know, yeah, we want to build this brand into an icon in restaurants. And we don't care about retail until they need the depletions. Mm-hmm. And, and then, like, how come nothing's moving? <laughs> exactly. And then you need the depletions. And, you know, that's when it's, you know, that's when the retail comes in. But it's, uh, you know, so I, I segmented, you know, the uh, the som trade, the um, um, retail, mid tier restaurants, B restaurants, and part of my success is I actually have a really good network of pubs that I do great business with because maybe they don't have a lot of wine, but what they have, they move. What they don't well, a obviously they need to be busy. If they're busy. They don't have a lot of wine. The wine list is really small. And in those kind of places, when you de- develop a relationship, it's pretty much all it's pretty much all yours if you have that close of a relationship. Because there's not a lot of people who are that's not on their radar a lot. It's not on the radar. You know, the big companies, Empire and Southern, they'll go after everything. But you know, there's a lot of places that you know, no, I'll just buy, I'll just buy booze from them, and find uh, you know, find wine from others. So I mean, I probably, I mean, on my account, I probably have about. 20 pubs that I do business with. And we're going back, I mean, we're going back uh, 12, 13 years. Because some of those buyers probably stay there for a long time. Like whoever is the buyer at a pub probably isn't moving to some other. Yeah, well, there you there you deal mostly with the, um, a lot with the owners. The owner. You know, I mean, a good friend of mine, uh, Noelle, she works, uh, she's one of the partners over at Stout, over by Madison Square Garden. I think everybody's probably been there when they went have gone to the garden. It's a huge, big beer bar. They have what no 30, 40, 50 stouts. You know, the place is a monster and it's busy as all heck. You know, but uh, you know, I used to work with her actually. She used to work at Paramount with me. And her her owner, well, she's one of the owners, but her partner, you know, he owns like eight other pubs. So and this is a relationship that was cultivated ten plus years ago. That is still going strong, and still one of my most important people. Because you put those ten together, you now have, you know, a good chunk of business right there. So a lot of times we think about the three and four star restaurants as like making wines, but in terms of actual what 
what actually moves through the market. So something that just does tons of volume and has multiple outlets can really help you out. I think every every business has to have. Um, I think well, you know, I th the philosophy of Verity was, you know, we kind of want to be want to kind of be there for everybody. Mm -hmm. And is that a hedge against different kinds of economy? Like, hey, luxury is doing really well now. Oh, also, you know, this kind of thing is doing well now. Now that the economy is not so good, that kind of allows you to carry through different sorts of years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if the okay, what what's the first thing that stops selling if the economy tanks? You know, your premium bottles. And I think when we started, when Verity started in '09, you know, that was that was the crash. You know, that's when the banking crash was, and a lot of the small companies that were out there at that point that only sold expensive wines, they were they were really struggling. You know, because it had been a strong niche before, they built all the way around it, and it, then it was really strong. And, and that's yeah, it was really strong, and that's how they you know they built their they built their model on that. But when Verity started, we a we the business plan was modeled on a down economy. I mean, it was it was what was it eight months after the economy crashed? I guess something like that. And so it was modeled after a down economy. And which is, okay, you know, people are like, is this a good time to start a company? And 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 me, I just, I I got wind of it in August of 09 when the four managing partners, they started hatching a plan in December, January. Some of them saying, well, when was the, when did the banks crash? I think it was November, so a couple months after. And, you know, they were putting together a business plan. And then I got wind of it and people would ask me, my parents said, is this the time to, Join a new company I and mean, the economy stinks. And yeah, you could look at it that way. It's like, yeah, okay. But is it better to put a business model together on a down economy where you could ride the wave when it goes up? Or is it better to start it when things are good and then if it crashes, your numbers are completely out of balance, right? And also, you're probably not sitting on a lot of stock right away that you have to move, but you maybe bought at higher prices because you're starting after the crash and the prices are lower. Well, what we did, uh, what we did at the beginning with Verity, we're, we're starting to we're starting to get into the direct import stuff now. But what we did at Verity at the beginning is we didn't direct import anything, which was which was another fantastic idea, which really helped our success. We worked specifically through. Um, importers or brokers. So you're not sitting on stock of your own. But. If we needed to order seven cases of something, you know, we'd order seven cases. You know, when you're direct importing, you know, you have to, you got to take a pallet, you got to fill a container, you got to do all So It's like, okay, that container comes here and all of a sudden, uh-oh, it's not selling. It's like, oh, damn, now what do we do? But with uh, working with importers, where a lot of them warehoused in, Warehouse in Jersey, they're at Fond du Lac where we are, or Western. You know, just a short transfer away in three days, you have inventory. But if we needed to buy seven cases of wine X, we'd buy seven. If we needed to buy a pallet, 56 cases, we'd buy a pallet, or, and so on. So that really helped our, because we didn't, didn't raise a lot of capital at the beginning. But it's a fairly big company for which you didn't raise a lot of. I mean, thirty-five salesmen is pretty big. Yeah, you know what I mean and by virtue of distribution. So it's it seems like you started out what I guess it would be a medium, biggish company on a on a on a relatively modest uh, financial model. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I guess even when we, I mean, even when we started, I guess we weren't small, small, I and mean, we didn't just have two pages. You know, we actually had a book, 
and that book was, uh, you know, that book was put together by long-term relationships. I would definitely say it's uh, from from the beginning, the the model that was put down worked to a T. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, besides the direct import, uh, not doing not doing direct imports, the um, the the four managing partners were knew that they needed to get out of the gates really quick. So, okay, so how do you how do you put together a sales sales force? Okay, you can hire rookies. You know, no relationships. Um, you know, have to teach them. You know, it's you're off to a slow start. And if you need to, if you want to make an impact, you know, you need to do it quickly. You only really have one chance to do it for the most part. So not having not having a lot of money, they and really needing to think of how do we get veterans to come to us without offering them a huge salary you know i mean you know they offered a nice compensation but you know that goes away in a year and after that it's like uh oh now what do i do um so they started the company as a, an employee owned company and so that so, gave you an incentive to move because you had equity it gave well it definitely was it definitely was a well, it was a big portion when i was i mean i was at lauber and I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't necessarily unhappy. When uh, <laughs> I remember when uh, when when the the plan for Verity was hatched, I guess uh, Steve Duran and Chris Desor were the first to really start talking about it. I think that's how it worked. Uh, Chris was one of our one of our um, suppliers. He worked for Dendor Wine Management, which was the first people that actually brought their products over to us for uh, for about six months. Anyway, you know, we were close friends. For six months, it's like, got a plan. Got, got a business uh, going to start. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. It's like, you're going to come join us. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, so after, and then he kept on doing that. It's like, it's like you, you can't afford me. You can't afford me. And it's like, don't worry, you'll see. And so let's see, I, I think they started attaching the plan in uh, December, like I said, and it happened for me. It happened really, really quick, and then I guess sometime in the uh, summer of '09, July or August, um, the plan started to evolve, and I knew Chris was involved. I knew Steve was involved, and they mentioned that uh, Bill Shambi was involved. It's like really, Bill Shambi was with. I think most people know him out there. He was with. Lauber for 25, 30 years. He was their first salesperson. And I guess, you know, and, and one of the one of the top people there. It's like, Bill, really? And I was thinking, it's like, all right, this is kind of intriguing. I'll bite. I'll I'll listen to what you have to say. And from there it happened really, really quick. I mean, I think it was mid-August. Met them at um the fourth partner. Connie Ulmer, who is our uh, chief financial officer, met them at her apartment and listened to what they had to say. And I was really, I was impressed with a few things. A, with uh, Connie, who is instrumental in our success. I think one of the other things that a lot of wholesalers and small wholesalers don't have is we had a outside the wine business financial mind that was 
that was part of the four managing partners. Got it. So it's and not a bunch of poetic wine guys being like, well, we can make this happen. A couple of us. <laughs> but it was there was also this mind of being like, hey, there's a number here that we need to meet. Exactly. Exactly. And there needs to be checks and balances. And it's a company. We need to, we need to make money. The books need to balance. Actually, the other thing, and I'm really not sure why I thought about this, but right off the bat, I... Was looking at I was looking at the four partners, and I knew three of them. Connie was the only one I didn't know. And I'm thinking, it's like, you know, it's a, I guess it was probably I was taking the subway home after a meeting with them, and I was thinking about the four personalities. Connie's got a pretty big personality, so you, you know her personality right away. But they all brought different things to the table. You know, Bill was the voice of reason. Connie was the energetic uh, Chris was more fly by the seat of his pants. Uh, Steve was a little more analytical, you know. So I thought that oh, you know, four of them, they kind of complement each other, and one would put the other in, <laughs> you know, put them in their place, or uh, not really, not really that way. But uh, you know, just uh, you know, it's like, well, we could do it this way, you know? and and then the discussion happens. What was the reality of putting together a, a fairly? largest, medium, largest book in, in, in an area where there are a lot of small niche importers. And what, were, what was the focus? Because it doesn't seem like you guys went in any one direction. You didn't say like, hey, we're all about organic wine or we're all about German wine. You kind of spread it out. Um, was it hard to put together that large of a portfolio in an era where there's so much competition from importers? Or how did you go about it? Well, I think uh, besides besides the uh, besides the economy being, you know, bad and 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 the business model in that bad economy, another thing that was in our in our favor was that uh, because the economy was so bad, every single winery out there was unhappy. You know, everybody's sales was down. Everybody wanted to do more volume, and everybody wanted to do more volume, which is not you know theoretically the reason to 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 move i mean okay, the economy's down so like, what are you going to do it's like you know we got to wait for it to come back up but you know not everybody thinks that way so there were so many people looking to at least have a conversation of uh, you know it's like oh, i'll you know listen and you know, a lot of a lot of it uh, worked out and of, of course uh, others didn't but a lot of it worked out but when we you know i think it's important to we wanted to build a company that was, you know, for for every man, not just for one segment of the trade. Uh, you know, the 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 retail items or the, uh, the the more volume items, you need those. I mean, those are the ones that keep the lights on all the time. Mm -hmm. And you know, you need to you know you need to have those and sell and things that are consistent inventory. You need the fine burgundies, which you know they, you're here today, they're gone tomorrow there you know there's not a lot of volume there because that you, gets the high-end sommeliers on the phone you get the high-end sommeliers on the phone as a you know we like the organics and biodynamics just as wine people and 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 what it brings us and what we like i think you know but we definitely i think one thing we try we definitely try to stay away from we definitely try to stay away from the overly ripe, big fat things, you know, things that have a little more heart and soul to it. And that's definitely where it, um, you know, where it started at the beginning. But uh, as, you know, knowing we wanted to grow into a larger wine company, you know, we needed to, we needed to bring in you know, a good diverse portfolio. 
And one of the things that's changed uh, more recently, somewhat recently, is that you added Vineyard Brands to the lineup. What was that change like, and what did that bring to Verity? It was, uh, <laughs> it was probably a little scary. It's like Vineyard Brands, wow, that's big. That's, I mean, there's a lot in that book. And there's a lot in that book, and uh, it, it was big, and it's like, oh, could we have, we actually, uh, actually didn't take them on right away. I think, uh, I think we probably held them off. It's like, listen, you know, it's just too soon. And um, then eventually it was either it was time is right or it's like, you know, we, need to, we need to make this work and get it together. But that definitely catapulted us into the next uh, stratosphere. I mean, it's like you said, it's a big portfolio. There's a lot of brands there. Bucastel. You know, in, in that, uh, it's actually, yeah, it's uh, actually a portfolio that works perfect for the model of, you know, wine company for everybody. Because, you know, you had your Bocastels and you had your Burgundies and the wine box, but uh, you also had your Marques de Caceres. Mm -hmm. Which is a big retail item. Which is a big retail item, which is important. You know, same thing when we took on, um, uh, I guess a year earlier, Eric Solomon selections. Again, it was at that point. It was a it was a big portfolio for us at that because that was within a year and a half. And again, it's um, very well respected on the on the top end, but also with uh, with uh, inexpensive or retail item like a, a Vodia, which you uh, blue label you see in every uh, well, we hope in every retail store. But your career did take you on an interesting path because you worked for Paramount and then for several years and then uh, Southern Internet Market and purchased Lobber. Mm -hmm. And then you moved to Lobber. Uh, what was that change like? Well, when I was, um, when, uh, you know, when Southern came into the, when Southern came into the market, I guess eight, nine years ago, you know, I was Paramount, uh, I was at Paramount then for, uh, you know, seven or so years. And uh, you know when 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 they came to the market and when Charmer and Peerless merged, essentially, the market completely completely changed. What was the difference before and after? Well, for us at uh, for us at Paramount, we we lost a ton of brands, and we lost Belvedere, we lost Clico, we lost uh, Stimson Lane at that time. We lost a lot of our brands. So why do you think they moved? Um, you know, corporate alliances, you know, throughout the country. So you're saying that because something was a tight relationship in a different market, maybe Vegas, they wanted to maintain that relationship there. And so they moved in the New York market. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, Southern's, Southern's the biggest in the, you know, in the, in the country. So, and they obviously have alliances. I mean, I don't know how many states they're in, but, you know, they were never in New York before. So you take a, you know, you take a, uh, group like Stimson Lane, which is, you know, sets Chateau St. Michel people. And that, uh, you know, I was like, boom, they were gone. You know, the Clico thing was, that was, that was more, Clico Inc. was, uh, was separate from LVMH from OA Hennessy at that time. And that, that company emerged. So that was a different reason. But, uh, you know, we found ourselves losing all these brands. And I'm like, oh man, okay, this is, uh, this is getting a little scary. But throughout the whole, whole time, in a way, I was uh, I was real loyal. You know, it's like, oh, no, it's going to get better. I talked to my wife. It's like she would tell me, it's, you got to go, you got to go. But, you know, during the whole time, you know, I always, another thing that's really important from a, from a salesman's way, be friends with everybody. 
know, know all the salespeople from different companies that are out on the street, be friends with them, treat them with respect, get to know them, you know, just let that be your internal network. So one of the guys that um, I knew well was uh, Bill Bendelow, who's who works for us now. And I, I would you know, probably talk to him for about a year with, it's like, hey, uh, you know, of any openings there? You know, of any openings? And it's like, no, nothing now. You know, send, send your resume to this person, but I don't know of anything. And then one day I got a phone call from him. And he literally told me, it's like, send your resume now. It's like, okay. So. It was an opening some it was, territory. It was an opening of a territory and a real territory. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, that, that works. So I, s I mean, how does a, having a, one territory or another affect your life? I mean, what are the basics of that for someone who may not know? Well, the general, I mean, general start if you're, if you're not in the business prior to is you get, you get thrown to you the, the riffraff. You yeah. get you know, the small accounts, small accounts that everybody throws back into a pile. Like in Glengarry Glen Ross when he's calling that guy for the fifth time. Exactly. Like, I know someone called you last week. We yeah. <laughs> wanted to check in again, see if maybe you want to buy some property with us. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, yeah, it's like, it's like ah, I never did anything with him. Throw it back in a pond. The next person takes it. And it's like, eh, I never did anything. So you throw it. So they put the, you know, everybody does this. They put together an account run of 50, 75 accounts of, you know, people that are constantly on COD, things like right, that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, um, you know that's generally how that's generally how it starts for someone that's new into the market. But if you're, you know, if you're a veteran and you have, uh, you hopefully do the right thing and people like you and you switch jobs. I mean, you're looking to switch jobs into a territory. So a key territory had to open up, and that would be like Manhattan, Brooklyn. Yeah, depending on where. You, yeah, depending on where. You, I mean, the territory that opened up for me and Laura, unfortunately. Salesperson passed away. Well, it's like, you know, happened. You know, yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's like, oh, great. Territory. All right. And it, and, and the other thing, and it was a territory that fit Lauber's book really, really well. You know, it was uh, steakhouse driven. Oh, okay. Lauber had all the, uh, you know, the big uh, steakhouse brands, uh, whether it's Phelps, Jordan, so on. And it felt very, it, it felt, and I also looked at it and it was, to me, it was truly underperforming. I was like, this is all this territory did with these accounts? It's like, no way. And I interviewed with them three times, I think. It was a slam dunk. They wanted me. They, they, they offered me the job. Everything was done. And then I had to make my decision. And it, it, was, it was a no-brainer decision. But even though it was a no-brainer decision, it took me weeks and weeks to decide to go. It's like everything was pointing at it. It's like Paramount was losing brands left and right. My income was dropping, you know. Because your income is based on sales commission. It's commission. So, so yeah, if you're not moving those brands, you're not making any money. Exactly. And it was, it was just, everything was clear. My wife said, you got to do this. It took me six weeks to finally decide. It was mostly out of loyalty. It's like, ah, it's like I got my start here. They treated me so well. They were great to me. They gave me everything I needed to do. Took me six weeks, and then I finally decided to do it. But I heard from several people that with the ending of Paramount, they were kind of saying, "Hey, we're going to pull this back around," kind of right up until it ended. So you didn't uh, know it was going to. 
Well, well, that was the. I mean, that was the spin. Yeah. I mean, you know, company's not going to you know come on town. It's like, oh, we're not going to make it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's like, oh no, a year we're going to be gone in a year. <laughs> you know, Paramount. Right, you know, they went into a they went into a a partnership with National, which is another big uh, wholesaler in the country. You know, that dissolved, and um, so, but it was it was uh, it was clear. It's like, oh no, we're not. But uh, even, even though it was, uh, even though it was, even though it was dying, they, you know, they would say it's, it's not, it's not going anywhere. It's like we're we're doing fine, you know. And then all of a sudden, I take the job at Lauber, and uh, it seems like I start jobs and finish jobs on September first for my last three gigs. It's kind of weird. Six months after I joined Lauber, I get phone calls from all my friends who work at Paramount. They're shutting the company. They so actually they sold it to Southern. They're shutting the company. It's like everybody's got to re-interview for jobs. I mean, I I am. It's probably the most fortunate thing that ever has happened to me in this business. It wasn't because I was smarter. Uh, dumb luck, I think. Because yeah, I mean, we all saw it, but it was you know complete denial. So six months. So everybody is literally. Looking I mean, for jobs you're, in a you're tight talk, market. You're talking about 150 salespeople looking for jobs in New York State. Um, but uh, on the know, same day, <laughs> on this on the same exact day, and a, a bunch of them joined Lauber, but you know they they kind of went everywhere. And they didn't get the the, the pick yeah. of the litter territory like you did. Uh, yeah, and that's the other thing. You know, yeah, a couple people really just seemed like they never kind of um, reemerged. A sense. You know, the funny thing is with. The, maybe not the very intelligent thing is I should have made the decision to go to Lauber immediately but when I was posed with this decision to go with Verity I was my actually both decisions were made when my wife was in Canada she was back home visiting her family and I called her up I got home I don't even think I waited till I got home I called her up I want to do this and she was like what? What do you mean you want to do this? It's like this is a new company. When you left Paramount, it took you six weeks. You're deciding in a day. It's like, yeah. I mean, get home. We'll talk about it more. But yeah, I'll tell you why. And in time, it needed to be done then too because you know this was mid-August, and Verity was basically up and running a month later. It was a quick move. I mean, I mean, in terms of Verity's rise, it was kind of rumored about, and then boom, they had a big M, fairly large-ish presence all of a sudden. I mean, for me, it was uh, literally it. Uh, the process was was one month. I mean, finding out about it, sitting, saying yes, and then it uh, it uh, it's starting up. What was the labor experience like, though, in between? How 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 did that affect uh, your life? I mean, what was what was the reality of working in labor? The labor experience was for the most part, fantastic. Um, the Labo organization was, when I started there, was, was I thought was just the hands down greatest place to be. I mean, they were buttoned up. It was run like a fine oil machine. The, the, first, the first thing that blew me away, and this is, it seems so, so small and insignificant, I come home one day and there's a box at my doorstep and in that box, I had no idea what it was. We weren't expecting anything. Stack of sales catalogs, you know, for the month. It's like, oh my God, no way. They, they're setting you up. They're setting me up. 
Paramount, I think we got our sales catalogs a week late every every month. You know, so it's like, oh man, this is this is great. Somebody wants have, me to succeed here. <laughs> I don't have to run to the office and waste a day and pick up uh, and pick up uh, catalogs. Do you think that the the liquor business has changed to just be a little bit more uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and say the last twenty years as things have gotten so much more competitive in the New York market? I think it's gotten more competitive in New York market because there's just a lot more people running around. Yeah, than anything. Um, I mean the the and the big spirit houses have grown to be so big and everything everything has merged where they're just so large now, and you know a lot of it is a lot of it is corporate, you know, and uh, you know corporate needs to answer to you know different people shareholders, not just and it's a matter is it's about selling mm-hmm. and making that number every single year and you know hooker by cook you got to you know you got to do it in that in that world it's a little less casual like oh yeah you know i haven't heard from him i don't know when he showed up today it's more like there's a guy who's calling you being oh. like what's going on yeah three of them so what do you see verity uh progressing in the next few years you got vineyard brands now you're doing eric solomon what's going to happen in the next 5 10 years with verity in the new york market you know, right now it's uh, right now it's uh, status quo in the sense that um, you know we're a decent size, we're um, we're doing well, we're moving forward. We got a you know we got a lot on our plate, and this this year it's a matter of getting getting all our making sure everybody's happy, making sure that the brand's going out there. So. You know, nothing's you know nothing's coming to us. Nothing, we're not looking at anything to to move us to move us forward in in that sense. Just you know, organic growth. Which, we want to utilize which, what you have. Yeah, which which is going phenomenally well. And I think the uh, the the other thing that's uh, will the way we'll branch out is uh, now you know more direct import stuff. Mm-hmm. Bringing stuff for yourself. Bringing stuff for ourselves, which benefits everybody. Because you can offer it for a lesser price because you're no, cutting you, out. You cut out the middleman. Yeah. You know, so as a direct import, you cut out the middleman. And, uh, you know, we can we can order more wine now than we could at the beginning. Because <laughs> the float's a little bit bigger. <laughs> yeah. Even though uh, even though we, we monitor that really closely. But that's the next that's the next step in the evolution, and we started to uh, we started to direct import some uh, some Italian wines and actually some Greek wines. That's that's because of a friend of Chris Desor's. and uh, you know we're taking those. He's working on taking those wines to a uh, to a few different markets, you know, uh, New York, New Jersey, Chicago, or Illinois, Delaware area, you know. So which is also good because that gives us uh, that gives us uh, avenue and in inventory, which is being you know, spread out, but it's also it's also here for us. So you know, um, inventory be you know consistent. Tommy Vanek, thank you for breaking down the nuts and bolts. Appreciate oh, it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It was a great experience. Tom Vanek of Verity Wines. Thank you for being on the show today. Take care. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or 
to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.